0: Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. We continue in Part 1, Section 2 of the Catechism. Uh, Again, we're discussing the Holy Spirit, as we did last week. And more specifically, we're discussing the divine economy of the Trinity, and specifically the Holy Spirit's Um, actions within that divine economy. So if you flip back to the 200s paragraphs, that's where the catechism treats who the Holy Spirit is, so the theology of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And now we're in the 600s and 700s, which treat what he does, so the divine economy, uh, what the third person of the Holy Trinity does. And this week, there's this beautiful line on which I'd like to focus um, so our reading today in the second half of the episode will be paragraphs 702 through 747, and paragraph 710 describes how trials, sufferings, the Lord's correction in our lives are actually, quote-unquote, his mysterious fidelity, or his faithfulness to each of us, his desire for each of us to be deeply happy. Um, the quote-unquote uh, plan of goodness to make each of us share in his own blessed life, as Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph one so beautifully states. So we'll read paragraph 710, and then towards the end of the episode, or the end of the first half of the episode, we'll also read from paragraph 736, which discusses the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So if we allow God in his mysterious fidelity to purify us purge us, sanctify us, cleanse us. It will bring about these beautiful fruits, patience, kindness, generosity, etc. So first we read from paragraph 710. The forgetting of the law and the infidelity to the covenant end in death. So here the catechism is speaking of the Israelites, the chosen people, um, and their exile, and then wandering in the desert. It is the exile, apparently the failure of the promises, which is in fact the mysterious fidelity of the Savior God and the beginning of a promised restoration. But according to the Spirit, the people of God had to suffer this purification. In God's plan, the exile already stands in the shadow of the cross and the remnant of the poor that returns from the exile is one of the most transparent prefigurations of the church. So the Israelites, the chosen people, they turn from God again and again, and again. God tries to get their attention again, and again, and again, but they keep turning away. Finally, God allows them to be sent into exile. So they're sent away from what they know, the comforts of the, relative comforts of the life lives they've been living, and they're led on this uncomfortable journey, quote-unquote, according to the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, who's actively leading and working on and purifying and strengthening and deepening his people. So it's not just Yahweh, the Father, or Christ, the Son, who's about to appear as the long-awaited Messiah, but it's the Holy Spirit who's at work. In reality, all three members of the Trinity are at work because God is one, and we can't separate the three persons of the Trinity. But it's interesting and I think helpful for us that the Catechism specifically references the Holy Spirit as the one leading them um, along this exiled journey. Like we mentioned last week, uh, I think for many people, our understanding of the third member of the Trinity is a little less defined, a little more nebulous than our understanding of the first member, the father, the second member, the son, where we have kind of these traditional images of father and son. We don't always have that of the Holy Spirit. So, it's the Holy Spirit, God, who loves his people, and so he will correct them in a way that's doable, but also helpful. He knows how to stretch them, challenge them, purify them, and each of us in a way that we can handle and in a way that ultimately leads to our salvation and happiness. We have to make it harder for ourselves. So when we directly sin, or when we resist the movements, the promptings of the Holy Spirit, in our lives so that he has to bring us back from even further away. But, thank God, he's up to the task. Did you ever encounter or have one of those annoyingly cheerful teachers or super dedicated coaches who just would not let you fail? You may have even gotten to the point where you just wanted to metaphorically sit down and give up and perhaps you thought, why are you still wasting your time on me? one of my teaching assignments, I worked with a woman, a fellow theology teacher, who just would not give up on her students. She loved Jesus. She loved her students. And she not only wanted them to succeed in her class, but she wanted them to have a happy association with the Catholic faith. So she didn't want to toe the line so hard that they were driven away from this either boring or very rigorous way of, of teaching and learning, such that they were like, ah, forget it. Um, so she, she really tried to strike this, this difficult balance and I think achieved it. So she had this dilemma. On the one hand, she didn't want her students to fail theology because she thought they might associate or even directly think, um, have I failed or question, have I failed my relationship with Jesus and the church because I failed this theology class? On the other hand, she wanted to hold her students accountable Their relationship with Jesus and the church and life in general is not a matter of, I do what I want and it all works out in the end. It's like, no, you have to turn in assignments, you have to take tests, you got to show up. So the way she navigated this dilemma was as follows. With homework and tests, if students didn't do homework, they didn't get credit for the homework. What? And if they didn't do their homework, they also didn't seem to do as well on tests. Shocker. So this teacher gave academic detentions when students missed homework. They would have to come in after school, complete the homework, and then they had one opportunity to retake the test. After completing this, let's say, detention homework, they received a portion of the credit for the homework assignments. And then after retaking the test, they received an average score of the failed test and the makeup test. So it got students into the passing zone, really. And lo and behold, they learned a few things about Jesus and the Catholic Church along the way. So I remember she had this one student, Alex, a sophomore, who was constantly in homework detention, doing missed work, retaking tests. And one day he looked at her and said, like, "Uh, when are you going to give up? I'm in here every week. Like, I'm not really changing. And she, again, just annoyingly, cheerfully smiled back at him and said, never, I'm not giving up on you. So good news is he barely passed. Um, And who knows, this was over a decade ago. Hopefully has a a good or happy, healthy association with with Jesus and the Catholic Church. So God is often like this. He sends us not detentions and make up homework assignments and test-taking opportunities, but He sends annoying people into our lives to make us more patient. He allows the loss of our jobs and even illness to remind us that this isn't the end game here and that we're made for more than this life. He allows us to be overlooked, forgotten, underappreciated, humbled, humiliated even, because as St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, humility, humility, and humility are the three most important virtues. Why? Not because God is mean or out to get us, but because when we're humbled, when we're purified, when that stuff in us and in our lives that's not necessarily bad or sinful, but just not of God um, gets in the way, he clears that away so as to make room for more of this blessed life, this deep and abiding happiness that he has in store for each and every one of us. And as God clears away this extra stuff, in us, and fills us more and more with his Holy Spirit. Along with the Holy Spirit comes the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which paragraph 736 discusses today. It says, By this power of the Spirit, God's children can bear much fruit. He who has grafted us onto the true vine will make us bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We live by the Spirit, The more we renounce ourselves, the more we walk by the Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we are restored to paradise, led back to the kingdom of heaven, and adopted as children, given confidence to call God Father and to share in Christ's grace, called children of light, and given a share in eternal glory. The Holy Spirit pours out his gifts upon us at baptism, and then he seals them at confirmation. As we, by the grace of God, put these gifts into practice, we use them, then the fruits of the Spirit begin to pop up in our lives. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts like fortitude, wisdom, knowledge, wonder and awe, are poured into us at baptism and then sealed at confirmation. And then the fruits, what the catechism just mentioned, love, peace, patience, kindness, begin to crop up in our lives God willing, throughout our lives when we're living that life according to the Spirit, when we're putting to good use the gifts he has given us and following his promptings in our day-to-day lives. This doesn't mean that life will be peachy keen, that uh, as the prosperity gospel preaches, you know, we'll have extra time on our hands, we'll receive adulation at work. But what it is saying, what the catechism is teaching us, is that we'll have peace, one of these fruits of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of hardship. We'll have patience in the midst of the annoying circumstances of life. And while life might not look that different from the outside, and mysteriously it might even look harder for those who who love God more deeply and are closer to him, in the midst of those storms, in the midst of the ups and downs of life, God will fill us with his fruits, his gifts, and continue to walk with us in a way that leads to not only eternal life, heaven in the next life, but peace and joy, et cetera, in the midst of the struggles of our daily lives. So this brings us to the end of the first half of our episode. We'll take a brief break and then return to read our catechism selection, paragraphs 702 through 747. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 702 through 747. God's Spirit and Word in the time of the promises. From the beginning until the fullness of time, the joint mission of the Father's Word and Spirit remains hidden, But it is at work. God's Spirit prepares for the time of the Messiah. Neither is fully revealed, but both are already promised, to be watched for and welcomed at their manifestation. So, for this reason, when the church reads the Old Testament, she searches there for what the Spirit, who has spoken through the prophets, wants to tell us about Christ. By prophets, the faith of the church here understands all whom the Holy Spirit inspired in living proclamation and in the composition of the sacred books, both of the Old and the New Testaments. Jewish tradition distinguishes first the law, the first five books, or the Pentateuch, then the prophets, our historical and prophetic books, and finally the writings, especially the wisdom literature, in particular the Psalms. In creation... The word of God and his breath are at the origin of the being and life of every creature. It belongs to the Holy Spirit to rule, sanctify, and animate creation, for he is God, consubstantial with the Father and the Son. Power over life pertains to the Spirit, for being God, he preserves creation in the Father through the Son. God fashioned man with his own hands, that is, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and impressed his own form on the flesh he had fashioned, in such a way that even what was visible might bear the divine form. The spirit of the promise. Disfigured by sin and death, man remains in the image of God, in the image of the Son, but is deprived of the glory of God, of his likeness. The promise made to Abraham inaugurates the economy of salvation, at the culmination of which the Son himself will assume that image and restore it in the Father's likeness by giving it again its glory the Spirit who is the giver of life. Against all human hope, God promises descendants to Abraham as the fruit of faith and of the power of the Holy Spirit. In Abraham's progeny, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This progeny will be Christ himself, in whom the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God commits himself by his own solemn oath to giving his beloved Son and the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In Theophanies and the Law, Theophanies, manifestations of God, light up the way of the promise, from the patriarchs to Moses and from Joshua to the visions that inaugurated the missions of the great prophets. Christian tradition has always recognized that God's word allowed himself to be seen and heard in these Theophanies, in which the cloud of the Holy Spirit both revealed him and concealed him in its shadow. This divine pedagogy appears especially in the gift of the law. God gave the law as a pedagogue to lead his people towards Christ. But the law's powerlessness to save man, deprived of the divine likeness, along with the growing awareness of sin that it imparts, enkindles a desire for the Holy Spirit. The lamentations of the Psalms bear witness to this. In the exile, excuse me, in the kingdom and the exile, the law, the sign of God's promise and covenant, ought to have governed the hearts and institutions of that people to whom Abraham's faith gave birth. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But after David, Israel gave in to the temptation of becoming a kingdom like other nations. The kingdom, however, the object of the promise made to David, would be the work of the Holy Spirit. It would belong to the poor according to the Spirit the forgetting of the law, and the infidelity to the covenant end in death. It is the exile, apparently the failure of the promises, which is in fact the mysterious fidelity of the Savior God and the beginning of a promised restoration. But according to the Spirit, the people of God had to suffer this purification. In God's plan, the exile already stands in the shadow of the cross, and the remnant of the poor that returns from the exile is one of the most transparent prefigurations of the church expectations of the Messiah and his spirit. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Two prophetic lines were to develop, one leading to the expectation of the Messiah, the other pointing to the announcement of a new spirit. They converge in the small remnant, the people of the poor who await and hope the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. We have seen earlier how Jesus fulfills the prophecies concerning himself. We limit ourselves here to those in which the relationship of the Messiah and his spirit appears more clearly. The characteristics of the awaited Messiah begin to appear in the book of Emmanuel. Isaiah said this when he saw his glory speaking of Christ, especially in the first two verses of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The Messiah's characteristics are revealed above all in the servant songs. These songs proclaim the meaning of Jesus' passion and show how he will pour out the Holy Spirit to give life to the many, not as an outsider, but by embracing our form as slave. Taking our death upon himself, he can communicate to us his own spirit of life. This is why Christ inaugurates the proclamation of the good news by making his own the following passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The prophetic texts that directly concern the sending of the Holy Spirit are oracles by which God speaks to the heart of his people in the language of the promise, with the accents of love and fidelity. St. Peter will proclaim their fulfillment on the morning of Pentecost. According to these promises, at the end of time, the Lord's Spirit will renew the hearts of men, engraving a new law in them. He will gather and reconcile the scattered and divided peoples. He will transform the first creation, and God will dwell there with men in peace. The people of the poor, those who, humble and meek, rely solely on their God's mysterious plans, who await the justice, not of men, but of the Messiah, or in the end, the great achievement of the Holy Spirit's hidden mission during the time of the promises that prepare for Christ's coming. It is this quality of heart, purified and enlightened by the Spirit, which is expressed in the Psalms. In these poor, the Spirit is making ready a people prepared for the Lord. The Spirit of Christ in the fullness of time. John, precursor, prophet, and Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, by Christ himself, whom the Virgin Mary had just conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary's visitation to Elizabeth thus became a visit from God to his people. John is Elijah who must come. The fire of the Spirit dwells in him and makes him the forerunner of the coming Lord. In John, the precursor, the Holy Spirit completes the work of making ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist is more than a prophet. In him, the Holy Spirit concludes his speaking through the prophets. John completes the cycle of prophets begun by Elijah. He proclaims the imminence of the consolation of Israel. He is the voice of the consoler who is coming. As the Spirit of truth will also do, John came to bear witness to the light. In John's sight, the Spirit thus brings to completion the careful search of the prophets and fulfills the longing of the angels. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Finally, with John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit begins the restoration to man of the divine likeness, prefiguring what he would achieve with and in Christ. John's baptism was for re- repentance. Baptism and in water and the Spirit will be a new birth. Rejoice, you who are full of grace. Mary, the all-holy, ever-virgin Mother of God, is the masterwork of the mission of the Son and the Spirit in the fullness of time. For the first time in the plan of salvation, and because his Spirit had prepared her, the Father found the dwelling place where his Son and his Spirit could dwell among men. In this sense, the Church's tradition has often read the most beautiful texts on wisdom in relation to Mary. Mary is acclaimed and represented in the liturgy as the seat of wisdom. In her, the wonders of God that the Spirit was to fulfill in Christ, and the Church began to be manifested. The Holy Spirit prepared Mary by his grace. It was fitting that the mother of him in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily should herself be full of grace. She was, by sheer grace, conceived without sin as the most humble of creatures, the most capable of welcoming the inexpressible gift of the Almighty. It was quite correct for the angel Gabriel to greet her as the daughter of Zion. Rejoice. It is the thanksgiving of the whole people of God, and thus of the church, which Mary in her canticle lifts up to the Father in the Holy Spirit, while carrying within her the eternal Son. In Mary, the Holy Spirit fulfills the plan of the Father's loving goodness. Through the Holy Spirit, the Virgin conceives and gives birth to the Son of God. By the Holy Spirit's power and her faith, her virginity became uniquely fruitful. In Mary, the Holy Spirit manifests the Son of the Father, now become the Son of the Virgin, She is the burning bush of the definitive theophany. Filled with the Holy Spirit, she makes the word visible in the humility of his flesh. It is to the poor and the first representatives of the Gentiles that she makes him known. Finally, through Mary, the Holy Spirit begins to bring men, the objects of God's merciful love, into communion with Christ, and the humble are always the first to accept him. Shepherds, Magi, Simeon and Anna, the bride and groom at Cana, and the first disciples. At the end of this mission of the Spirit, Mary became the woman, the new Eve, mother of the living, the mother of the whole Christ. As such, she was present with the twelve, who with one accord devoted themselves to prayer at the dawn of the end time, which the Spirit was to inaugurate on the morning of Pentecost with the manifestation of the Church. Christ Jesus. The entire mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit in the fullness of time is contained in this that the Son is the one anointed by the Father's Spirit since his incarnation. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Everything in the second chapter of the Creed is to be read in this light. Christ's whole work is, in fact, a joint mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here we shall mention only what has to do with Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit and the gift of him by the glorified Lord. Jesus does not reveal the Holy Spirit fully until he himself has been glorified through his death and resurrection. Nevertheless, little by little, he alludes to him even in his teaching of the multitudes, as when he reveals that his own flesh will be food for the life of the world. He also alludes to the Spirit in speaking to Nicodemus, to the Samaritan woman, and to those who take part in the Feast of Tabernacles. To his disciples, he speaks openly of the Spirit in connection with prayer, and with the witness they will have to bear. Only when the hour has arrived for his glorification does Jesus promise the coming of the Holy Spirit, since his death and resurrection will fulfill the promise made to the fathers. The Spirit of Truth, the other paraclete, will be given by the Father in answer to Jesus' prayer. He will be sent by the Father in Jesus' name. And Jesus will send him from the Father's side since he comes from the Father. The Holy Spirit will come, and we shall know him. He will be with us forever. He will remain with us. The Spirit will teach us everything. Remind us of all that Christ said to us and bear witness to him. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth and will glorify Christ. He will prove the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. At last, Jesus' hour arrives. He commends his spirit into the Father's hands at the very moment when by his death he conquers death, so that raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, he might immediately give the Holy Spirit by breathing on his disciples." From this hour onward, the mission of Christ and the Spirit becomes the mission of the Church. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. The Spirit and the Church in the Last Days. Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when the seven weeks of Easter had come to an end, Christ's Passover is fulfilled in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, manifested, given, and communicated as a divine person. Of his fullness, Christ the Lord pours out the Spirit in abundance. On that day, the Holy Trinity is fully revealed. Since that day, the kingdom announced by Christ has been opened to those who believe in him. In the humility of the flesh and in faith, they already share in the communion of the Holy Trinity. By his coming, which never ceases, the Holy Spirit causes the world to enter into the last days, the time of the church, the kingdom already inherited, though not yet consummated. We have seen the true light. We have received the heavenly spirit. We have found the true faith. We adore the invisible Trinity who has saved us. The Holy Spirit, God's gift. God is love, and love is his first gift, containing all others. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because we are dead, or at least wounded through sin, the first effect of the gift of love is the forgiveness of our sins. The communion of the Holy Spirit in the church restores to the baptized the divine likeness lost through sin. He then gives us the pledge or first fruits of our inheritance, the very life of the Holy Trinity, which to love as God has loved us. This love, the charity of 1 Corinthians 13, is the source of the new life in Christ, made possible because we have received power from the Holy Spirit. By this power of the Spirit, God's children can bear much fruit. He who has grafted us onto the true vine will make us bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We live by the Spirit. The more we renounce ourselves, the more we walk by the Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we are restored to paradise, led back to the kingdom of heaven, and adopted as children, given confidence to call God Father and to share in Christ's grace, called children of light and given a share in eternal glory. The Holy Spirit and the Church. The mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit is brought to completion in the church, which is the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. This joint mission henceforth brings Christ faithful to share in his communion with the Father in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit prepares men and goes out to them with his grace in order to draw them to Christ. The Spirit manifests the risen Lord to them, recalls his word to them, and opens their minds to the understanding of his death and resurrection. He makes present the mystery of Christ supremely in the Eucharist in order to reconcile them, to bring them into communion with God, that they may bear much fruit. Thus, the church's mission is not in addition to that of Christ and the Holy Spirit, but is its sacrament in her whole being, in all her members. The church is sent to announce, bear witness, make present, and spread the mystery of the communion of the Holy Trinity, the topic of the next article. All of us who have received one and the same Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, are in a sense blended together with one another and with God. For if Christ, together with the Fathers and His own Spirit, comes to dwell in each of us, though we are many, still the Spirit is one and undivided. He binds together the spirits of each and every one of us, and makes all appear as one in Him. For just as the power of Christ's sacred flesh unites those in whom it dwells into one body, I think that in the same way, the one and undivided spirit of God who dwells in all leads all into spiritual unity. Because the Holy Spirit is the anointing of Christ, it is Christ who, as the head of the body, pours out the spirit among his members to nourish, heal, and organize them in their mutual functions, to give them life, send them to bear witness, and associate them to his self-offering to the Father and to his intercession for the whole world. Through the church's sacraments, Christ communicates his holy and sanctifying spirit to the members of his body. This will be the topic of part two of the catechism. These mighty works of God offered to believers in the sacraments of the church bear their fruit in the new life in Christ according to the spirit. This will be the topic of part three. The spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes with sighs too deep for words. The Holy Spirit, the artisan of God's works, is the master of prayer. This will be the topic of part four. In brief, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. From the beginning to the end of time, whenever God sends his son, he always sends his spirit. Their mission is conjoined and inseparable. In the fullness of time, the Holy Spirit completes in Mary all the preparations for Christ's coming among the people of God. By the action of the Holy Spirit in her, the Father gives the world Emmanuel, God with us. The Son of God was consecrated as Christ, Messiah, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit at his incarnation. By his death and resurrection, Jesus is constituted in glory as Lord and Christ. From his fullness, he poured out the Holy Spirit on the apostles and the church. The Holy Spirit, whom Christ the head pours out on his members, builds, animates, and sanctifies the church— she is the sacrament of the Holy Trinity's communion with men. This brings us to the end of our episode. Thanks so much for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.